0: hi it's mike it's saturday and this is a show this is the saturday show we bring you one from the week the best of the week and the best from the past all of our collective pasts but more specifically mine on the gist season one the best of the week i went mono a nano i took on nanoplastics and the huge freak out over the fact that we can now find very teeny bits of plastic turns out there are a lot of them in water bottles and then for the best of all time we go to december of 2016 when tim hartford stopped by about his book messy the power of disorder to transform our lives he does not like leaving your email unsorted so tim hartford with big ideas and columbia researchers with little plastics in this episode of this saturday show Maybe it's because people looked at my desk. Maybe it's because people saw my calendar. Maybe it's because people closely observed my style of dress. But many people have pressed this book into my hand. Messy, the power of disorder to transform our lives. I think these people thought this was trying to get me on the uh, straight and narrow. But in fact, messy is a full-throated defense of messiness or variations on messiness that I want to talk to its author, Tim Harford about. Hello, Tim. Hello. So I think in this book, Messy, Messy is a great title and it's a great cover, but there are different variations. One is variety. One is going outside your comfort zone. One is uh, an embrace of heterodoxy.
1: Yeah, it's it's a messy enough book. I yeah, have to say, <laughs> that's good. I mean, I'm talking it's
0: a, about... It's a built-in justification. Yeah,
1: yeah I'm talking about uh, letting go, improvising, uh, working with people you... That, that make you feel uncomfortable, putting yourself in situations that make you feel uncomfortable, multitasking, and of course, you know, plain old-fashioned mess, messy yeah. calendars, messy desks, f- physical uh, mess, all of those things. And so it is a messy celebration of the entire thing.
0: But as I look at you, you are dressed perhaps like a member of Mum and Chance. You have just a very neat black turtleneck on. I've met you a couple times and nice haircut. You don't seem messy, are you? I'm a tidy person. <laughs> you
1: are tidy. I confess. Well, if you were to... Come to my house and and say look at my kitchen. You would say this is a tidy person. If you if you went to the sitting room, you went to the bedroom. I, I'm not saying I would actually invite you to my bedroom, but if you did, if you <laughs> if you were so lucky, depends you, on how this interview goes. You I guess. would <laughs> uh, exactly the, the day is young. You would say this is a tidy person. But if you saw my desk, uh, most days you would say this is pretty messy. It's not mm-hmm. chaos, but it's pretty messy. Piles of paper anywhere, piles of paper everywhere, and. What I was trying to do in part was to understand, well, hang on, why is the kitchen tidy and the desk messy? Is there something? I, and I realized there's actually no such thing as just a fundamentally tidy person. Some situations call for more disorder than others. I mean, the difference between the kitchen, for example, we're, we're, we're told a place for everything, everything in its place. Well, that's fine in the kitchen. You know, put the glasses in the, in the glass cabinet and the corkscrew in the corkscrew drawer. No problem. There is a place for everything. Okay. So where is the place for your email? It comes into your inbox, fifty a day, a hundred a day. And it turns out if you try to to impose order on them too quickly and put them all in folders too quickly, you will lose them. There is I've talked to one of the leading experts on this subject, a psychologist called Steve Whitaker. He says there is such a thing as premature filing. Yeah. You have information that you don't fully understand. If you try to label it, structure it, organize it too quickly, it's completely counterproductive. If you let it build up in your inbox, or you let the paper build up on your desk, you're actually probably going to be more productive.
0: Yeah, and and spending all that time to create all the files and all the places that it goes is you you'd just be better off spending your time dealing with your. Uh, email as email rather yeah, than just, email as the taxonomy of email.
1: Just just answer the email. You yeah. can you can deal with the fine gradations later. But this is a very common misperception. Nobody ever has to apologize for getting to inbox zero. No one ever has to apologize for having a tidy desk. We feel we have to apologize when, when things look messy. And one of the stories I tell in the book is of Benjamin Franklin, obviously one of the re- most remarkable lives in history, President of Pennsylvania, U.S. Ambassador to France, signature on the Declaration of Independence, invented the bifocal lenses, set up a newspaper, with a printer, blah, blah, blah. I mean, so much. Also, a self-improvement guy. He kept trying, in a very modern way, trying to improve himself, eliminate his flaws, embrace higher and higher virtues. And yet, in his autobiography, at the age of 80, he looks back and he says, yeah, I was pretty good at, at embracing all of those virtues and eliminating all of my flaws. It was just one I could never get sorted. I was always disorganized. Messy desk, (laughs) messy diary, and just the... I mean, it makes me laugh the idea that Benjamin Franklin's going. Gosh, if only I had more Manila folders, I would. I would really have got something done. It's crazy. Of course, it's yeah. crazy, but it's it's addictive. The well, tidiness.
0: it's beyond it's beyond crazy. It's almost kind of cute that he doesn't realize that the messiness directly led to the bursts of creativity. It oh. must. It wasn't a flaw. It w- it wasn't a bug. It was a virtue.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't prove that, but yeah. I think I I have pretty good reason to believe it certainly did him no harm. Uh, you don't want to argue. From from anecdote, there but there are lots and lots of very very messy people who are very successful. And as I've been talking to people about this book, the number of very successful productive people who've come up to me and said, "Oh, I feel so much better about my messy desk." I just you know, we beat ourselves up about this. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you actually look at you know, serious research on the on the subject, people who study you know, the flows of documents, flows of information, there really is no reason to believe. For for most people, it depends on your job. But there's no reason to believe for most people that actually tidying everything up all the time is in any way a sensible thing to do. It doesn't help you.
0: I think there's a gender dynamic. I have read read studies that show that clutter bothers women or they have a lower threshold point for being bothered by clutter than men. And uh, I live this in my own life where I am literally blind to the things that my girlfriend is driven crazy by. Well,
1: I'm gonna take your word for it. I have not seen those studies and I'm always slightly suspicious of them because we're so we're always so keen to believe gender studies mm-hmm. that, that say, oh, well, men and women are different. Yeah. But maybe you're right. What's certainly true is that different people have different tolerances for mess. And so if you live with somebody or if you work with somebody, whatever the gender, you know, you might be a tidy person and they might be a messy person or vice versa. And we have to figure out ways to live with each other. Some of the research I discuss in the book is about this this barbaric policy of clear desks, where the management of a company, many companies are far too sensible to do this, but it's, it's not uncommon for a company to say, everyone has to clear their desk. Yeah,
0: Bloomberg has this rule where you can have one picture of a family member and that's it, and no other pieces of flair on your desk.
1: Yeah, well, I describe uh, BHP Billiton in Australia has this rule where you can either have a picture of the family or a framed certificate of some kind of award or something that you've won but not both. No, It's like so if you want to display your award <laughs> yeah. the punishment is you have to remove that. I mean it doesn't make I guess maybe you could
0: show you could have a framed certificate of your child's perfect attendance a little bit of two birds with it's, one stone. It's yeah. it's very very strange that we that we think
1: that this in any way is going to help and the justifications are often circular. We say well this is the way that professional people behave. Or uh, our office will look tidier if it looks tidier. It's just crazy stuff. But the the research I was talking about: two British psychologists set up different office environments and got people to work in them, and saw how productive they were, and, and asked them, you know, how are you feeling? Are you, you, know, do you are you enjoying the the tasks that we're giving you? Do you like the office space? All of this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. What they found was people tended to like decorated spaces rather than very very minimalist spaces. But that wasn't a huge difference. What made a massive difference is whether people felt they had control. So the most productive spaces were the ones where they said to people, here's a pot plant, here are some paintings, you you can have the pictures on the wall, you can put the pot plant where you like, or we'll take it away. You, You get to decide. People were very productive and very happy. And when they did that, and then afterwards said, oh, I'm sorry, we have to change this, and then came in and moved everybody's stuff around, having given them control, then they took the control away from them. People felt physically sick, and they hated everything. They hated the task. They hated the office. They hated the company. They really hated the researchers. They wanted to punch the researchers. So when we take autonomy away from people on the basis of what is an incredibly superficial thing, I want your desk to look clear. I mean, I don't know why we do this.
0: Yeah, and this, by the way, gets to my conflict with my girlfriend and everyone else's conflict with their spouse or the person they live with, which is, it's not necessarily that I'm inherently or intrinsically messy. It's just that my order isn't their order. So my order makes them feel out of control. And so even the person who says, I have my my own filing system and it's crazy. It's true, they do. But if you actually made that filing system look cleaner or tidier to the outside, but that person didn't have control, it would drive them crazy, and it would be worse for them. No,
1: you're absolutely right. And often, a messy system offers us all kinds of clues if we've been using it. If this pile of paper on our desks uh, is something we've been using, we recognise in very subtle ways that you know, the the dog is here, and there's a coffee stain there, and there's a uh, little bit of post it note sticking out, and you'd be you could never express it in words, but you really do know where the stuff is. And by the way, that pile is self-organizing. Yeah, The stuff you're not touching is sinking to the bottom. The stuff you keep using keeps appearing on the top, which any computer scientist will tell you is actually the optimal way to organize a computer's memory cache. So it's, it's not a random distribution of paper at all. But you look at this, and to you, it makes perfect sense. And to anybody else, it is incomprehensible and incredibly untidy. So we you know we just need to figure out some way of accommodating each other.
0: Okay, so I have a couple of, I don't know if they're pushbacks, but some of these are answered in the book or actually have been answered in our conversation. Uh, you say you can't argue by anecdote. So true, yet so many of these examples are right there for the plucking and you talk about brilliantly creative people who maybe have a couple of projects at once or brilliantly creative people like Brian Eno who inject uh, messiness to the creative process and it helps. Is there an argument that messiness is great, perhaps, to foster greatness? It's a great way to get the absolute pinnacle of achievement. But if what we're going for is just some sort of base level competence, messiness is not the way to go.
1: I think there are tidy situations that deserve to stay tidy, Mm -hmm. where standardization helps us, habits help us, routine helps us, quantification helps us. And that can be true whether you're operating at a very high level. Maybe you're a brain surgeon using a checklist – don't be, don't be a messy brain surgeon, even yeah. if you're brilliant. Or it could be at a very basic level. But it's then a, again, the neuroscientist, but the, who the, problem.
0: Had, the neuroscientist might have the insight due, due to a messy habit of mind. You know, he might be the kind of person who's working on three projects at once, and that might prompt him to something. I mean, in general, I would say I want a messy music producer more than a messy accountant, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe within that field of accounting, like there is a insight that that guy has that came about due to some messy habit.
1: No, I think you want a tidy accountant. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Because... <laughs>
0: Because and there's
1: a good reason because the the accountant is dealing with highly structured information, and so there is already an order to the information. It makes perfect sense. And if you're if you're messy, then you you mess with that order. It's not going to help you. But I can give you a, a very straightforward everyday example of disruption making very ordinary people more effective. The London Underground strike of a couple of years ago. So almost everybody in London gets to work on either the London Underground or the buses or the overground trains. Very few people own cars. It's a dense city. A couple of years ago, the tube stations, the underground stations, two-thirds of them were shut down by industrial action. And so people had to find some other way of getting to work. And we can track all of this because everyone's got these smart cards that they use for their journeys on, on the buses, on the trains, on the underground trains, everything. What researchers found was... Obviously, lots and lots of people changed their route to work because, well, you know, two-thirds of the stations are closed, so you've got to find a new route to work. But then thousands and thousands of people never changed back. And so this is an example of you have a routine, and it turns out your commute to work is suboptimal, and it's been suboptimal every day of your life. You, know, you, would, you would have thought you'd have worked it out by now, right? But you've, it, you've actually been doing it wrong your whole life. Along comes 48 hours of a strike, you have to find a different way and suddenly you're like, oh wow, I never realized I could do it this way. It's better, it's cheaper, it's faster, whatever. So that's just a simple example of how a disruption, an obstacle, seems to mess us up but
0: enables us to find a better way of doing something. So. I have always thought a lot of this is self-justified, but as I live and think about things, the self-justification sometimes uh, fades away, but sometimes becomes more focused. And here's what I've come to conclude. The messiness is good, but what you really want is either call it messiness, a little bit of chaos, improvisation within structure. And if you have that structure, I could think of so many examples, the jazz musician who can improvise, but there's a superstructure that they're improvising. And also just the fact that they became the virtuoso jazz musician. You weren't screwing around when you were taking your lessons or the film noir, that there were these this haze code and there were these rules, but within that structure, you could have great creativity or the best comedy. You know, you, you stick to certain rules or you stick to a format or, you know, when I host the uh, comedy show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, that superstructure allows the comedy To flourish within it, and that is all improvisational. The question is, you know, at what point do you say this is the structure and the structure can't be messy? Or, you know, can you take the lesson of messiness, keep extending it out until you don't even have a structure anymore? That doesn't seem to help. No, I don't think it will help. I'm not saying in this book that
1: total chaos is (laughs) the answer to everything. for yeah. instance, the pages are in yeah. order. The pages are <laughs> yeah. absolutely the in font order. is
0: consistent. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, there is one exception to that. There's a slightly different font on one page. For, Brian Eno page. You know, uh, there's 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 a different font because there's some interesting research on what reading in different fonts <laughs> right, does to right, you. And right, actually. Right. Focuses your attention when you have
0: to... Exactly, yes. <laughs> I found it. I can page see a, a little
1: bit of, of perky German Hattenschweiler font creeping into the neatness of the page. Yes. Uh, but and right. a zesty
0: Comic Sans <laughs> italicized.
1: Yes, it, it is a very zesty font. But no, you're absolutely right. You need a structure. We are probably, in most situations, not being quite as loose as we can be, not being quite as messy as we can be. We're probably sticking too closely to the script. And if we let go a little bit we probably get better results so that i'm trying to to just not swing the pendulum to an extreme but just push it a little bit away from where it generally
0: tends to be tim harford is a columnist for the financial times he's the author of the undercover economist and his new book is messy the power of disorder to transform our lives thank you so much tim thank you And now the spiel. CBS Channel 2 Chicago has an important health message that you and your family won't want to miss. may want to think twice before reaching for that plastic water bottle. A new study found one liter of bottled water contains hundreds of thousands of nanoplastics. That's according to researchers from Columbia University. Nanoplastics are tiny, untraceable particles that can cause health issues like GI disorders, birth defects, even death. Wow. In 18 seconds, we went from the gentle recommendation, you might want to stop the slurping, to death, death. Also, if nanoparticles are untraceable, how'd you count them, huh? Columbia researchers, how? Columbia research scientist Neijin Chin here explains. This box is to host the two, two laser beams. Okay, I can't quite tell you exactly how they counted. There were laser beams involved, apparently, but they did count, and here's what they found. I'll read from the AP write-up. Looking at five samples each of three common bottled water brands, researchers found particle levels that range from 110,000 to 400,000 per liter, averaging around 240,000, according to a study in Monday's Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Previous studies, the AP once more reporting, have looked at slightly bigger microplastics that range from the visible five millimeters, about a fifth of an inch, to one micron. About 10 to 100 times more nanoplastics than microplastics were discovered in bottled water, the study found. Okay, then does some math. There are 25,000 microns in an inch. They compare it to hair. You gotta compare it to hair. But this means there are 5,000 microns in a quarter of an inch. I don't want to confuse everyone with all the conversions, but when they measured the thing that they could see years ago, which are microplastics, they found a lot of microplastics. Now, through the lasers, they found a way to search for nanoplastics, which are even smaller. And I will, quoting again the AP, they found ten to a hundred times more nanoplastics than microplastics in bottled water. But a nanoplastic is one thousandth the size of a microplastic. So did they actually find more plastic? Or were they able to just look at smaller pieces and get us all freaked out. They definitely got us all freaked out. Time Magazine headline, microplastics in bottled water, 10 times worse than thought. No, they're just able to find plastic 10 times smaller. And certainly they found some more, but not 10 times more. We can see the smaller plastic once more. I'm deferring to the Columbia researchers thanks to the laser beams. Now it could mean though, None of this in any of the write-ups make it clear. It could mean there's a lot more plastic, but I'm pretty sure that all they found was that if once you get the microscopes or the laser beams, you do get some more plastic, but you just get better at looking at smaller pieces of plastic. And there certainly are tinier pieces of plastic than we knew how to look for. But, you know, maybe 10 times is justifiable because I went back and read the original study and there is some stuff there that would indicate that maybe you could get to 10 times worse. But Newsweek, always in competition with time, blew past that. Chemist warned bottled water 100 times worse for plastic than thought. CBS News also went with the 100 times worse. Many others did too. CBS wrote the researchers found 110 10,000 to 370,000 particles in each liter. According to the study, about 90% of the particles were nanoplastics, while the rest were microplastics. In fact, the original paper does indicate that 90% of the amount of plastic they found is nanoplastic. But that is different from saying 90% of the particles. Again, if you take a microplastic, smash it, so it becomes entirely nanoplastics, you have a thousand times the original amount of plastic. Basically being able to look at smaller bits means you're able to up the count But there also is, I do think, more plastic than we'd previously thought. But none of this really tells us what we need to know. I can make an analogy to meat, red meat. Eating too much red meat is generally bad for us, colorectal cancer and all that. And this is a fact, the average person in the United States consumes 82 pounds of beef every year. But guess what? Scientists with laser tanks have found a way to detect smaller amounts than a pound. It's called an ounce up to one sixteenth the size of a pound. And by looking at ounces, scientists have determined that the U.S. consumer eats an average of, are you ready, 1,312 ounces a year. That's 16 times worse. Now, to be fair, these nanoplastic detecting scientists actually detect more plastic, like I said, not just microplastics that have been smashed with tiny hammers into their component parts. But if that happened, they would detect it and it would show as whole new amounts of plastic. It is hardly 10 times the sheer tonnage of the microplastic. But here is the important part in all of that. It's not for me to argue with exactly how much more plastic is found. It's to emphasize that we all know what the effects of microplastics and nanoplastics are on the human body. And that effect is of course Unknown, entirely unknown. It seems really scary who wants to eat plastic. No Connor, put the giraffe down. Who wants to eat plastic? But it is unknown what the effects are. I certainly think there could be effects. You're probably thinking that too. But it's clear that headlines like plastic and water is 10 times worse, that is guaranteed to freak us out without really being certain what we should be freaked out about. I read an article recently in The New Yorker about all of this called How Plastics Are Poisoning Us. It's a very interesting article, New Yorkers usually interesting. It taught me about things I didn't know about small plastics and things called nurdles. But what it didn't prove was that plastics are poisoning us. There was an essay in the New York Times titled, Our Way of Life is Poisoning Us. It talks about all the plastic in the world, and it in no way proves, or really even attempts to prove, that our way of life is poisoning us. Not only is the headline crazily deceptive, come with me as we examine the methodology. It's kind of insane. Graph one. There is plastic in our bodies. It's in our lungs, and in our bowels, and in the blood that pulses through us. We can't see it, and we can't feel it, but it's there. It is there in the water we drink and the food we eat and even in the air we breathe. We don't know yet what it's doing to us because we have only quite recently become aware of its presence. But since we have learned of it, it has become a source of profound and multifarious, or perhaps multifarious, cultural anxiety. This thing that we have no proof is harming us is very, very worrisome because it might be harming us. And then in graph two, watch what he does here. Here's here's how it starts, maybe it's nothing, maybe it's fine. Maybe this jumble of fragments, bits of water bottles, tires, polystyrene packaging, microbeads from cosmetics is washing through us and causing no particular harm. But even if that's true, there would still remain the psychological impact of the knowledge that there is plastic in our flesh. What? You can't do that! You can't argue that you should be anxious. Wait, why should we be anxious? Because of all this anxiety we have. The SAS, his name is Mark O'Connell, and he's the author of Notes from the Apocalypse, A Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back, says, The impact of the knowledge, so it goes, this again, Impact of the knowledge that there is plastic in our flesh. This knowledge registers in some vague way is apocalyptic. No, it's not vague, it's direct. It's literally the point of what you've written. Cut to the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, war turns to famine and says, "All oh, this death, it's kind of like a plague. Anyway, of course, these plastics, the nanoplastics, could be harmful, sure, and I do say study that, but you know it's extremely harmful, and this is even smaller than a nanoplastic. It's so small, it can't be picked up by any microscope. Worry, fear, anxiety, bummers, these are the four horsemen of the doom-pocalypse. You know who the heroes are in this whole story? It's the plastic purveyors. No, it's not the Time Magazine headline writers either, it's the scientists. One, talking about the measurement of a quarter of a million pieces of nanoplastic in a liter of water, remember that was the big headline or one of the big headlines that didn't say 10 times worse, quarter of a million pieces of nanoplastic in a liter of water. She's uh, Denise Hardesty, Australian government oceanographer who studies plastic waste. She says that total weight is equivalent to the weight of a single penny in the volume of two Olympic-sized swimming pools. I once swallowed a penny. I've never swallowed two Olympic-sized pools. That is 5 million liters of water or 5,000 years worth of consumption for the average human if they hit their water quota. I give special credit to the researchers of this study themselves. By the way, the AP says, "quote All four co-authors interviewed said they are cutting back on their bottled water use after they conducted the study." Mmm, telling is it? Cutting back? Do you think cancer researchers cut back on their cigarette consumption? Yes, yeah, pack a day, but now that I saw the effects on lungs, eh, just a couple after a meal, and out back on research breaks. Here is one of the researchers with a actual laser beam of insight. I mean, whether we see it or not, it's out there. So it's better that we actually know how much is out there and what they are. Um, But I, myself, as a scientist, I would want more data in terms of the toxicology study to actually know um, how harmful it would be to my own body. I raise a glass to you, Neijin Chen, and a glass of bottled water at that. Might as well throw a penny's worth of caution into the wind, which scientists say probably is also going to kill us. And that's it. The Gist is produced by the team collectively known as the Quaint Mallards. They are Corey Wara, producer, and Joel Patterson, senior producer. And on Monday, we won't talk to you. It's Martin Luther King Day. Talk to you on Tuesday.